You're listening to Parenting in the First Three Years, the place where we explore the strategies and soul of parenting from pregnancy through the first three years of life. I'm your host, Ann McKittrick. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello there and welcome back. If you're listening to this podcast, then you know that becoming a parent is a totally life-changing event. Oftentimes when I'm coaching parents, we spend a lot of time processing the paradigm switch that happens in these first years, because truly everything about your life takes a sudden turn when a baby enters the picture, and it takes time and energy to settle in as a parent. And then just when you think you've got it down, everything changes. Today's episode is all about that, and I'm so excited to have Ellen Galinsky here with me to talk about navigating and understanding the stages of parenting as they unfold with time. Ellen is the president and co-founder of Families and Work Institute. She's the elected president of the Work and Family Researchers Network, a network of several thousand researchers globally, and additionally serves as a consultant to the immediate office of the Assistant Secretary of Youth Mental Health at the Administration for Children and Families in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Her life's work revolves around identifying important societal questions as they emerge, conducting research to seek answers, and then turning those findings into action. You're going to learn so much about your own parenting journey in this episode. So here we go. Enjoy this conversation with Ellen Galinsky. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am so excited to bring this message to parents of young children because I have used and talked about the stages of parenting with so many parents. And it just, it's like a light goes on inside in their face, you know, when, when they understand, oh, that's why I'm thinking that. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we are kind of taking a look at your book. It's called The Six Stages of Parenthood. This is a book that really describes what it is that we are going through. You know, I remember whenever I had my kids, I had worked in early childhood. I had been an infant teacher for so many years. I knew babies, right? I knew all about them. I taught infant development. I took care of babies all day. And then when I had my first baby, I was like, this is different. (laughs) So I would love for us to talk about the first two and a little bit of the third stage of parenting. So would you mind just kind of giving us an overview of these and how it works? I would like to actually start with why I wrote this book, because I had the same experience. I was a child development person. And when I had my first child, it wasn't that I didn't understand his development. I didn't understand mine. Right. There was one day where I think he was a toddler. Maybe he was a little bit older. It'd been a rough day anyway. And it was a stormy, horrible winter, February day in New York where I live. And I wanted to get out of the house, even in the rain, even in the sleet, even in the snow, get me out of here. (laughs) And I went for a walk and it looked actually quite beautiful to be away for a moment. And on that walk, it was to a waterfall that is not so far from us. And I was just watching the beautiful swirls of water turning into ice in the waterfall and thought, that's just how I feel. And it then occurred to me that people who are parents, go through stages, just like kids go through stages. And it was and is an unusual insight. I think we understand children's development. We still don't understand parents' development as well as we should. 
But all of a sudden, a lot of things made sense. I was teaching in a college then, and I was in a group of people who were looking at the latest research. And those of us had very different reactions to the research, depending on our child's age. You know, the parents of young children would hate a finding, or just hate it, like not be neutral, but hate it. And the parents of grown-up children or grandparents would like, well, y'all know that's completely accurate. And, you know, I wanted to better understand it, but where do you go to understand it? I went to the literature. It wasn't there, really. There was a literature on how we change in our careers, you know, what career growth is like or job growth is like, but really nothing about how we change as parents. And that led me to continue to look at the research because at the beginning of parenthood and at the end of parenthood, there are some studies, but I had to do my own and go out and interview. What I decided to do was just to talk to parents as with as much diversity as I could. So all over the country and with children from uh, pre-birth through 18 years old. I mean, it doesn't end then. I'm a parent of grown children. It certainly doesn't end then, but that's where I stopped in this journey. That's amazing. So you ask about what I discovered and it really was a discovery. I mean, it was just a series of discovery. The first thing that I discovered about the transition to parenthood, and most of us talk about parenthood as beginning at birth or zero or, you know, zero to three, you know, the organization's have those sorts of names. We don't think about the time before parenthood, but I've actually recently looked at a lot of the research on the transition to parenthood. And I say that purposely because it's not just a transition for the expectant mother, whether it's by birth or adoption, but it's a transition for the other people in her life or his life and the people who are closest to the parent go through changes. And Recent studies have shown that the brain changes that happen in that period of the transition to parenthood are comparable to the brain changes in adolescence. It is a sensitive period of development. It is really a critical period of development. It's a period when our ideas we're trying on, we're rehearsing, we're playing with becoming parents, even if it's our third or fifth child. It's a different child. It's a different experience. And we're rehearsing that. And I call it the image-making stage. Because that's when we're trying to figure out what we liked, what we didn't like about the way we were parented, what we liked and didn't like about the people around us and the way that they parent their children or teach children. And we're figuring out what kind of person we want to be to this new person for whom we're going to have so much responsibility. And it's a roller coaster time. I remember some of the early studies before they even thought of this as a stage would say, these people are psychotic. (laughs) They're crazy. You know, they go from high to low. And, you know, that's not different from the emotional. I'm just finished a book on teenagers, uh, the emotional uh, swings that we can have at times where things mean so much and we care so much, but we're not psychotic. We're just figuring it out. And so there are a lot of things that then make sense. One of the things that I think about is we often think that we're going to die and having a child. And Mm -hmm. it was very reassuring for me to talk to lots of parents. By the time I was doing this, I had two children and that was, you know, we're going to have those two children. But I could think back about how terrified I was about everything. You know, are you hurting this child? Aren't you hurting this child? And the images of death, which you think, well, maybe that's telling you something, maybe that, you know, superstitiously, I'm going to worry about that. But it's in a sense, a death of the person we were Mm -hmm. and a rebirth of the person whom we will be. 
So these psychological stages that we go through in becoming a parent and figuring out at this time what kind of parent we want to be are really important. And I spent the last six years before coming back to the Families and Work Institute at the Bezos Family Foundation, where we took a very deep look at the transition to parenthood and ended up funding a center on this because it's a time to make a real difference in our own thinking. We're learning how to be parents before we even have that child, that first child or that next child. And it's a time where being intentional about it is so much more useful than you know, flying blind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you find as you were doing this work, differences between like a very young expectant parent versus a person who's older, you know, like maybe a 17, 18 year old versus a 40 year old? Well, I looked at that, but it was an exploratory study. So I can't, I can tell you my impressions. I can't tell you that these are data. I went to programs that were for pregnant teenagers and interviewed a number of the young people there. And as well as just in going around the country of wanting to interview people of different ages. And when you are very young and you're figuring out who you are, identity is the task of being a teenager. Then you have a double whammy. You're figuring out who you are and who you're going to be as a parent. And, you know, there are always double whammies. So it is never that we're not without double whammies, but we're figuring out two things at once. If we're having children, as I did when we're just beginning to establish our work life, then we're trying to figure out who are we as a work person versus who are we as a parent person. And that's the double whammy there. And if we're older, we're figuring out, well, what kind of parent do I want to be given the wisdom that I have from my experience? So the ingredients of our lives always fit into this, but it's different for different ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I so remember image making from the time I was a kid. And then especially when I was working with parents of infants and, you know, just watching and observing and loving knowing them and thinking about my own, you know, someday when I would be a parent. We've done it for a long time. And that's what's important. We've been forming these images since we were kids. I'll never do that that way. You know, we will say to a, you know, when we're 10 years old to some parent who's done something that we think is Mm -hmm. stupid. So we've been forming these images for a long time. This is the thing that I think is the beauty of being able to unearth the fact that there are stages of parenthood and that this is a task, is that we can be intentional about it. We can say, well, do these images that I have, to what extent are they real? Which becomes very important when that child is born. And we do have the cultural images of, I would say, the Johnson and Johnson perfect, you know, the three-month-old who's actually supposed to be a newborn, you know? (laughs) This always smiley baby, you know, the who look in your face baby. And if it's not that way, which inevitably some of our expectations don't come true, then it's really useful to know what those expectations are so that when some of them don't come true because they just don't, you know, that's life. We can't plan it out and control it in the way that we could. It's useful to understand that as a process too. And mm-hmm. that leads me to the next stage, which is the nurturing stage. And I would start with birth there because inevitably in the birth, there are probably differences from what we expected. We were going to have take no anesthesia for the mother, you know, it was going to be this angel singing, violins playing kind of (laughs) moment. And, you know, the doctor doesn't answer us right away. The nurse is rude, or it's more wonderful than we expected. But that clash between expectation and reality, and I think that's the biggest insight and lesson from 
the six stages of parenthood, which is that little kids play to figure out their world. I mean, it's very serious when they play. They're pretending as a way of figuring out the world and how it works. We play in our minds. That's what image making is. And we're forming expectations of whether we're going to a new house for the first time, driving to a new place for the first time, starting a new job, whatever we are, we're forming expectations of it. That's the normal process of making the world manageable for us. So those expectations become the yardstick by which we judge what actually happens. And where there's a clash between what we expect and what happens, that's when we get sad, depressed, angry, upset in all kinds of ways. And that is, again, really, really important to know because we tend to see it or guilty. I mean, that's another thing we can do. Guilty. The birth wasn't the way I thought it would be. My child doesn't look like me. My child is supposed to look like me. I was going to be this all-involved father. All I'm going to do is you know, take a walk. So if we understand that process is normal, that we've had an expectation, I think of it as like a fever, that if you have a fever, you know that there's something wrong. The clash between expectations and reality is like having a fever. It's a temperature-taking thing. And then if we can just stop and say, what did I expect? And is it realistic? And then it becomes a moment where we can either change our expectations to be more realistic. I thought I would never talk to my child the way my grandmother talked to me or whomever. Is that a realistic expectation? I thought my kids were going to get ready to leave in the morning with no problem. You know, is that a realistic expectation? And if it is, then you find some way. Maybe you don't want to talk to your children the way your grandmother talked to you. And then you find a way to change. So these moments where there's this clash between expectation and reality, think of it as taking our temperature and seeing, well, what's wrong? What's actually underneath? Why am I sad? Why am I guilty? Become the moment where we can grow because it's by aligning our expectations better with reality that is the growth in parental growth. Living up to an expectation that we want to or changing an expectation to be more realistic. Those are the two pathways that we follow. But those are the moments of growth. And I honestly think that understanding that as a parent is just a boon to going through these times, which a lot less angst. And I think it's important if you're a teacher or professional or a doctor who works with parents to understand that this is normal behavior. Just like we understand toddlers saying no, 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 no is normal behavior. We need to understand that process of clash between reality and expectation as normal in parents and as the lever, as the moment, as the opportunity for growth. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love in your book is all of the scenarios where partners are talking about where they're coming from on their images and their expectations and then their clash of reality about how it really is when the baby is born. Would you mind talking about that a little? Yeah. Aren't the stories wonderful? I mean, I practice a form of science called civic science. And civic science means that the people who would be the participants in your study become the co-creators of your study. And I've never done a study, I can't think of a study that I've ever done otherwise, where I start with people asking, what do you want to know? And you tell me your reality. So I combine basic research, rigorous research, you know, studies these days, a lot of cognitive neuroscience, brain studies with the voices of people. So the stories of parents from all over the country were just breathtaking. I mean, they are just breathtaking, honest, because you see yourself and we learn through stories. I've now understand that better than I did when I wrote The Six Stages of Parenthood, but we're storytelling people. That's the way we make sense of reality, just like we 
platform images. Those images are like a movie, you know, they're a story. They often have a villain and a victim and someone who's the hero in those stories. And that's normal for us. It's what leads to the we, they in society. So hearing people's stories and seeing ourselves in people's stories, even though they may be different, even though they may be from Texas and I'm from New York, and I did go to Texas to interview for this book. It's just wonderful because the themes came out from the people. And particularly, still, there's not that much research on parental growth and development. I think it's kind of a sad indication of maybe where we place parents in our society that we, you know, in another world, there should, there would be whole departments studying parent development. You know, there would be you know, a whole field of research on this as there is in child development, adolescent development, aging development. It just isn't. That's true. Still, it's sad. But yeah, it is. Thank you for and, doing this because maybe we'll bring it back and have more people pay attention to it. Yeah. And it, or at least understand yourself a little bit, you know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of new stuff coming at parents that you and I didn't experience when we were young moms and even reconciling the images that we are seeing online versus the reality, I think is a really important task of parenting. I do too. I mean, I'll tell a story of my daughter now. I'm a grandmother. When our little one was two, she looked online and some parents she knew had a child who was counting to 200 in Japanese. <laughs> so one unusual thing is this child is not Japanese, <laughs> no Japanese in her background. And two, our little one was only counting to 20 in English, you know, at this age. But it was just devastating for my daughter to think that her child was behind, you know, there was something wrong. Oh my God, you know, he should be fluent in another language and counting to 200. And, you know, I would say, well, I actually wrote a book on this. <laughs> it's like, we're trying to figure out what's normal, but this is actually, there's a lot of diversity in development. And this is one thing that one kid could do, but doesn't mean anything about our one, our little one. Mm-hmm. I would tell her a story of a kid that they grow up with. We call it remembering Oliver. Oliver was the kid who was precocious and who could read, you know, barely before he could talk and who was st- studying physics in, you know, fourth grade or something. I can't remember exactly all the wonderful things he was doing, but it didn't protect him for his whole life. We know him now as a grown up, and it's a fake name. And uh, I'm not telling about a real person. I'm telling about a real person, but not with his name. But it's just no indication. And I had to say that to her many times because she was really devastated. It really bothered her that there was something wrong with her child. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, I think that the long-term perspective of looking at both a child who you think is, you know, one way at age two and then, you know, how it turns out. And also for parents, I think as parents, we kind of watch each other and we think, oh, I don't know. I don't know that you should be doing that or saying that or whatever. And then 20 years later, you're going, oh, well, I guess that was all right. (laughs) It looks like things are fine now. (laughs) Well, someone I work with who's a grandmother now, but comes from a family where picking up a crying baby was called spoiling and still is. I mean, there are just decades of research that say if you meet the needs of children, they're not going to be as needy uh-huh. later on. So picking them up, comforting when them crying is a very good thing to do. And she knows it because she works with us, but it's not the culture in which her own child, now she's a grandmother, is raising her grandchildren. And she can say, look, this is something that I actually know this child is going to get picked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is a lot of information. And it's hard to figure out what's real and what's valid. Right. It's very hard to figure that out. Yeah. 
The nurturing stage is when the baby is born until about what age? Well, you know, just like growth and development, if you look at any group of seventh graders, they're little, they're big. Uh (laughs) They're they're little kids. It's true in development. So at about the time your child starts saying no, 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 no. So maybe 18 months, maybe two years, maybe for some kids it varies, but it's usually the children's behavior that catapults us into the next stage. And we're often, we're not ready. Like, oh, I just got this one figured out. Let's, (laughs) you know, now I've got a new one. And This is the point where you have to figure out what kind of an authority to be. Not that you only do that once. You do that again when your children are adolescents, but it's the first time you do it. And you have to figure out when to say yes, when to say no, whether you mean it or not, how your behavior is going to affect the child. So each of these stages in it, there's a task that comes from the outside, precipitated generally either in the nurturing stage, you've had a baby. Now you've adopted a baby. You've become a foster parent to a child but then tends to be the child's growth. The child changes, therefore we change. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think it's as important to note is that a toddler might say no, 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 long before they understand what the no means. I think that really is one of the clinchers in that next stage is when you say, this is a defiant no. This is not a language learning no. (laughs) Yes, true. Absolutely. I won't do it. I'll do it my own way. I can take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Let's give it a try and then I'll be right here. (laughs) So they're in this authority stage. And this one also requires a lot of conversation between parent partners, right? Yes. And I think, first of all, it's a myth that we're going to do it exactly the same as the other people in our lives. Maybe there are some people, I've heard people say that, but mostly they're differences. And those differences are actually good because children need to learn to deal with. I mean, not at the point where they're discrepant, not at the point where they're antagonistic. You know, if you hate the way your partner is doing something, that's not good. But those little differences are really good because the teachers whom your child is going to meet are going to be different than you are. And learning to deal with different people is a part of the child's learning. I talk about it as where we agree, where we disagree, and where we can agree to agree. Whatever is really important to you is the place where we need to work on it. And Adam Grant, in a wonderful book called Originals, talks about more creative children know that parents have differences and they're not hidden in the closet because it sparks more creativity, more ability to deal with more complex world. And again, I don't mean where you're fighting with each other. And in our case, there were some things like my husband was a complete food nut. And my kids could never have anything that had sugar as anything less than the fourth ingredient and absolutely no white bread ever and no preservatives in any food that they ever ate. And most everything was home homemade. He just was a nut about it. And I wasn't. And I cared about it, but not to the extent that he did, but he really cared about it. So I had to agree to agree with him. And we went along with that. And the kids knew that if they were out with me, they could get the cookie every once in a while. You know, and we'll, we'd, we'd say, we're going to have a cookie. We're going to tell him, but we're going to. And then I found out later that he had candy hidden away in his, in his <laughs> so he wasn't so perfect, but the kids <laughs> knew that all along. But there were things that I really cared about, like no teasing criticism of children. I really thought that that was harmful. And he grew up with that kind of bantering and he had to agree to support me on that. And I had to agree to support him on the food. And mm-hmm. each of those were really important to us. And so. That's agree to agree. 
and then we agree to disagree. Yeah. I think that's very freeing for people to hear that they don't have to be on the same page about every little thing and that if they're not, it's kind of good for their kids. It is good for kids. Yeah, it is good. Again, not at the point where you're at a war. Uh (laughs) Not at the point where you're saying he's a ridiculous, stupid person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so people who are listening to this, you know, zero to three, they stop at this authority stage, but let's just talk a little briefly about the next stages, just so people aren't left hanging on what they are. Well, the next stage is um, after the authority stages when you go into the middle school years and it's the interpretive stage. And that's when you are defining reality to your children. That's when they're full of questions about the world and how it works. And it tends to be a quieter stage. And then the next stage after that is the interdependent stage. And I call it that because most people think that adolescence is the kids leaving home. Well, they don't particularly leave home anymore. (laughs) There's a lot of kids who, you know, come back, back and forth, back and forth. But we're really forming a new relationship with our children. We're dealing with some of the things that we dealt with in the authority stage with them again, but it's a different kind of authority because they can actually drive the car do things where you're not there. And so what kind of authority are we then? But we're also realizing that our time as a direct hands-on parent is limited. And that leads to the departure stage, which is not the last stage of parenthood, but the last stage that I wrote about. And that is the stage when they begin to leave home at whatever age that is. And where we go back to almost image making, where we're figuring out we're taking stock of what we did that we think was good and what we did that we didn't think was so good and what kind of relationship we'd like to have with them now because it's a new relationship. What are our new traditions going to be? And if your listeners' kids are anything like mine, they move back and forth. So as soon as my daughter, my youngest child went to college, my niece moved in and then my niece was there for a while. And then my son finished college and came back home for a while. And then my daughter came home for a little bit. And it's kind of a back and forthness. None of this is like, you know, linear. It's right. much circular. Yeah. As with every part of parenting, huh? I'm in departure, of course. You know, my kids are grown and gone. And the thing that I find myself doing so often is just going back and replaying the things that happened and sometimes just, you know, beating myself up about or not, you know, but it is so freeing or it helps me feel okay to know that this is a developmental task of my age and that it's an okay thing to do. And if I feel bad, then I just need to figure out a way to feel better about it, which is usually a phone call to the kid. Hey, you remember that time that that happened or I'm really sorry. And they go, I don't remember that mom, but okay. You know, (laughs) that's wonderful. I mean, I think it's wonderful that you do that because my mother was that way. And I know from endless years of research that parents who are autonomy supportive, that is, help children, we don't fix things for children, we help children learn to fix it for themselves, which was a big part of my book, The Mind in the Making, and a big part of my forthcoming book, The Breakthrough Years, We Do Better. But being able to talk to our kids about going back and saying, I really didn't like the way I handled that. And not endless guilt. Oh, I'm so sorry, but right. you know, I'm sorry and I'll work on it. You know, they see that that's what adult growth is like. We're working on it. Yeah. It's a teaching moment. And usually they don't remember it like you. I'll remember other things though. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Okay. So 
I'm curious about the last one that is not in the book. What's it about? It's being the parent of an adult child. And I don't even know what the name of it is. Uh, <laughs> I haven't studied it. I've lived it. Yeah. Uh, what would we call it? You're living it too. It's a wonderful stage because we have adult relationships with our yeah. adults. It can be just a wonderful stage. Yeah. So tell me about your new book. Well, I spent from 2000 and till 2010 on a book called Mind in the Making, which was from birth through eight, looking at the best research and how we can help kids learn and thrive. And this book, the new book is called The Breakthrough Years. And it, it picks up where Mind in the Making left off with nine-year-olds and it goes through 19-year-olds and it looks at adolescent development. And it's a new framework for understanding adolescence. I think that's the best way to say it. It is very comprehensive in the sense that I started with kids, civic sciences, I always do. I asked them what they wanted to know. I should ask researchers. I talked and interviewed in depth 45 researchers. I read hundreds of research papers. I did two nationally representative study. I did with all of this as I, we did colleagues and I did a behavioral study. I did qualitative interviews with some people from the sample. So I think it puts it all together. It's just a new way. It's why it's called the breakthrough years, a new way of understanding that adolescence is like the early years, a critical time, a sensitive time in brain development and exactly what's going on. And it's different from the popular conceptions of what we think is going on. There are just a lot of things that are in the water, in the air about being the parent of a teenager or being a teenager that just don't fit with, particularly as we get research that combines cognitive neuroscience with developmental research, and particularly as we hear the voices of adolescents and parents themselves. Mm -hmm. So it'll be out next March. Sounds fascinating. Can't wait to read that. I think the teenagers and, well, all children of today, they are going to face a totally new world, you know? Things are just changing so fast, and it'll be so exciting to watch. So one last thing before we sign off, is there anything that you would want parents of little ones to tuck away in their mind and remember as they go through their day? I'll go back to the clash between expectations and reality that when we're feeling down, when we're feeling guilty, when we're feeling blue, when we're feeling angry, stop, pause. That's an executive function skill, pausing and try to unearth what were our expectations? What did we think that was going to happen in ourselves, in our kids, in the world that didn't happen? And is it realistic or not? And then if it is realistic, that is, we want that thing to happen, work toward it. And if we think, nope, all kids can have trouble leaving the home, you know, in the morning, it's not realistic to think it's going to be idyllic in every other household that it's idyllic. That's probably not true. And I'm just going to accept the world the way it is and not beat myself up for it. So I think it's just a way of bringing back both more understanding and more joy into being a parent. Mm -hmm. Agreed. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. I think it's going to be so insightful for people. Thank you. Thank you. If you love today's episode, take a minute and subscribe to our podcast. And one last thing, I'd love to pray for you and your baby if you'd like for me to. You can email me at ask at nurturednoggins.com. Your request can be as simple as just one word, or it can include an explanation. Either way, you can trust that I will pray for you. It's a quiet, simple way that I can connect with you and your family and support you in your parenting journey.